Hello and welcome to this special edition of Behind the Health Statistic. Um, this is in front of a live audience and we've made it in collaboration with Believe Organ Donation Support. Hello and welcome to Behind the Health Statistic. My name is Ricky Hellier and I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University. Um, this is part of our podcast series that you might have listened to in the past, um, but we're doing things a little bit different tonight because we're in collaboration with Believe Organ Donation Support and we've got a live audience in front of us as well, and we've had some questions sent in. Um, so what I'm going to do in a sec, I'm going to introduce you to Mike Stevens, who we'll be talking to. He's a consultant transplant surgeon. Um, but we'll also be joined by Kath Dunn, who's one of my colleagues at Cardiff University, and Nelson Salvaraj as well, who's a lecturer at Cardiff University School of Healthcare Sciences. So over to Mike. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hi, Ricky. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Good, good. So the first question I just want to ask, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, so um, I'm a consultant transplant and organ retrieval surgeon. I'm based in, in Cardiff. I work in, in the University Hospital of Wales there. Um, well, that's my base, although I spend quite a lot of time travelling around various other hospitals uh, as well as part of my duties. Um, so, yeah, I've been doing that role for... Um, gosh, a number of years now. I've been a consultant about twelve years. Been working in in transplantation for about fifteen. Yeah, fantastic. We're going to start really at at the very basic level. Can you just explain to us what transplantation and organ donation is, please, Mike? Yeah. So organ donation is when somebody donates one of their organs to somebody else who's in need of a transplant, simply put. Um, and there are uh, basically two ways that you can do that. You can donate one of your organs in life. So you can donate a, a kidney or, or part of your liver, rarely some other organs as well, but usually, usually kidneys or part of your liver to somebody that you, you know, or even to a stranger in life or more commonly actually you can donate um, organs after you die and that in in that setting then you can donate multiple organs to multiple recipients and that that is usually the case for for people who donate organs after death so so one person could donate to, to lots and lots of people then yeah yes yeah, so that that would be the normal um, situation that you can donate, you know, several organs, you can do donate hearts, lungs, liver, occasionally the liver can actually be split into two. So it goes to two different recipients. You've got two kidneys, so one can go to, to each of two different recipients. You can donate your pancreas, um, your small bowel. Um, and that is that, so they're the, they're the so, what we call the solid organs. Um, in addition to that, you can donate various other tissues as well, like like your corneas, um, bone and tissues and things along those lines. So if you it, so anyone who's willing to donate after death, they can directly affect uh, several different people all in one go. So yeah, so one person go on to yeah benefit loads of people. Can I can I ask like um. I know this, I appreciate this is a, probably a very big question, but, but why do people need to receive a transplant? Can you give me some reasons as to why that is, please, Mike? Yes, it's, well, there's a variety of different reasons and it, and it does depend a little bit on, on which organ we're talking about. So if you, if you think about 
kidneys to begin with maybe they're, they're the biggest uh, need there's more people waiting for a kidney transplant than any other organ uh, and some of the common reasons why people well simply put people would be in need of a transplant if they are on dialysis or about to about to start dialysis so these are people whose kidneys have completely failed and the only way of keeping them healthy is to either receive a, a kidney transplant or to to have dialysis and dialysis is a is a process that's extremely restrictive on on your time and on your uh, quality of life um, and significantly shortens your life in comparison to alternatives in particular transplant um, and some some of the sort of health conditions that can lead to kidneys failing diabetes is a very common one uh, high blood pressure there are a variety of other conditions, some that are inherited. So you'll find uh, some children affected with, with kidney disease. Um, some are what we call autoimmune diseases. So that's when you, your body kind of reacts against yourself and damages your own kidneys. There's a, a variety of different reasons. And that's just thinking about kidneys. If you go on to then think about lungs, um, cystic fibrosis things like that heart problems there's a variety of different infections that can cause problems with the heart heart failures a whole heap of different reasons why an individual can end up needing to have an organ uh, needing to have an organ transplant yeah, the vast vast majority of those are conditions that the individual couldn't do anything about you know these aren't these aren't people who've had unhealthy lifestyles and things like that. This, it's not a case that this is, you know, this is all for people who've drunk too much or smoked or, or not looked after themselves. That's not the case. The vast majority of people who are on the transplant list have lived a healthy life and they have just been unfortunate in, in the health conditions that they have. Yeah. Like I said, it's appreciated. There's probably thousands of different reasons why, why people might need winners in there, you know? So you mentioned earlier on that there's um, a couple of ways that people can donate. Um, they can donate um, alive or they can uh, donate after they've died. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you procure these organs, if you like, ready for transplantation, if that's okay, please? Yeah. Um, well, it might be easiest if we divide them into... Um, so it's so a living donors first off. Uh, so somebody wants to donate... A kidney say um the process is is fairly involved they go they need to go through a, a fair amount of health checks to make sure that actually going through the operation um isn't going to cause them any harm and they're not going to come to any long-term harm by donating so that process if you're going to be a live donor does take some time and you do need to be reasonably healthy to wait to be able to donate a, a kidney or part of your liver in life um Deceased donation is, is a different story. And, and basically, most people actually could donate um, an organ or at least some tissue after their death, regardless to what their health conditions are, regardless to what their background is. And you don't need to be really fit and healthy to be able to be an organ donor after you die. The process for actually doing the procurement of the organs or the retrieval of the organs as we call it is that um, we have a, a, a team of specialist nurses around the UK who work very closely in all of the all of the major hospitals in the country they work very closely with 
the intensive care doctors in particular, but also other doctors, for example, in, in A&E and various other places, anywhere basically where somebody may come to the situation where they may be able to donate organs. And those specialist nurses um, work with the team in the, in the hospitals, um, identify potential donors, go through the process of um, discussing with the family, making sure establishing what that person's uh, decision in life was about donation if they if they'd made one um, and then collecting a load of information about their health which then helps us as the transplant team to make a decision about whether the organs are going to be appropriate for the particular person that they've been offered to once the once the kind of that process has happened will um, the nurse will call for one of our specialist retrieval teams. So we've got uh, a small number of, of retrieval teams around the UK. So at any one time, there'll be nine or 10 teams in the UK who, who are available purely to go and do organ retrievals. Um, and we we will go. So for, for us in, in Cardiff, for example, we'll get notification um, of a donor somewhere in the country and we'll be asked to mobilize within an hour um, that's the usual time frame so we we kind of need to be ready and available to go we'll get in our uh, transport we'll take all our stuff with us including all of our our nursing support our assistant surgeons and all of our operating kit we take the whole lot with us in a in an ambulance van thing which isn't the most pleasant thing to travel in, I have to say, but uh, it's, uh, it is what it is. Um, we'll travel off to the donor hospital um, and then we will do the, the retrieval of the, of the organs. Um, so you have these specialist teams who, whose job it is just to do that, that role. Um, and that, what that does is it maximizes the quality of the organs. It makes sure that we can retrieve things in a safe way. And at the end of the retrieval procedure, what we'll do is we'll, we'll um, pack the organs all up in, in boxes. Usually, that's the usual process, is we pack the organs up in boxes uh, with ice to keep them cool and to keep them uh, healthy. And then we'll send them off to the transplant centre where they'll be transplanted into the recipients. So from the procurement side, that's the, that's the process in a nutshell. Can I ask you about... Um... You mentioned at the beginning about that, about talking to families and, and trying to find out um, what people's wishes were, um, if, what they've stated. Um, we've got like opt-out systems in the UK. Um, a question I got posed the other week is, well, just isn't it automatically that everyone is a donor now? Yes, yeah. the, the, the opt-out and the opt-in thing is, is an important uh, consideration so this you may remember in in wales wales was the first country in the uk to move to a, a, an um, opt-out system in 2015 and the other countries uh, england now changed in 2020 scotland last year and northern ireland have just agreed that they will be moving to it as well in the in the next year or two um, so we'll have all of the countries in the uk which will be um, opt-out now and it the the process for um for deceased donation needs two explicit things for it to happen it needs first off for the person to have died and second off it needs 
consent or authorization to go ahead. And that's a legal thing. So we need death and we need consent or authorization. Opt out is just a different way of um, establishing consent or authorization. Um, I, I'm saying authorization because that's the term in Scotland for consent. And actually, I, I prefer that to as a term, to be honest, because it, it consents in the, in the concept of organ donation is, is a, a difficult one if you are used to medical consent where it's the person who's giving them and no one else can give consent on their behalf and that's not quite the same in organ donation so um, um so it can be a little bit confusing but opt-out is just another way that that consent or authorization can be established and the principle of it is really simple um if you talk, if you discuss if you canvas the general population about 80 percent of people are in favor of organ donation in the, in so much as they would allow themselves to be organ donors if that situation arose so you know the majority the vast majority of the population so opt-out really means that we move the starting point to yes i agree with organ donation because we know that's what the majority of the population believe now, you still have an option and you still have the ability to choose not to be an organ donor if that's not what you want, and you can opt out in that case. And all, all the opt out or opt in thing is, with an opt in, the starting point is no, and you have to actually actively um, register. And with an opt out, it's the other way around. The starting point is yes, and you have to say no if you don't want to be an organ donor. Um, so it, it's... It's not everything when it comes to organ donation. And one of the key parts of, of the donation process is a discussion between the specialist nurses and the clinical team who are looking after the person and um, to, to discuss with their family or their loved ones about a variety of different things. Now, this is a key part of the process. It has to happen. It's a really important part of assessing individual. We need to know things about their history. We need to know things about their uh, background that will allow us to accurately assess the organs and make sure that we can utilize them to the best, uh, get them to the right people, to the right recipient. So we need that discussion with a family or with the loved ones. And part of that discussion then will be a, a, a safety check, if you like, as to what was the what was your loved one's um, position on organ donation? Did they have? Did you know what their position was? And we we try we try actually, and one of the things we learnt in Wales um, during as we implemented opt out is we try and use the term uh, decision organ donation decision rather than wish. Okay, and, and wish is wish is something that we we historically have used with organ donation, but actually it's got it's got the wrong connotations because you know you, you wish you win the lottery, but you don't really ever expect it to happen. Whereas decision is a, 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 a positive thing. You've made your decision. You want to be an organ donor in the same way as you've made your decision who you're going to leave your inherit inheritance to. You know, you don't wish that you, it would go to your children. You decide it's going to go to your children. So the, the terminology, it's subtly different, but it's important when it comes to organ donation. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that wording so important, isn't it? I've never really thought of it like that before, to be honest. Um, 
in terms of who can be a donor, um, because some people might say, you know, automatically assume that they're not in a position to be an organ donor, whether it's through age or something like that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Well, I, th I said already that I think the majority of people will be able to donate something after they, after they die, if, if that is their decision, uh, whether that's tissue, cornea, um, or, or an organ. And it, it's, it often surprises people um, how old donors can be. So, you know, we'll, for, for solid organs, so for, for, for livers and kidneys and lungs and things, um, we'll go up to 85 as the, as the upper age cutoff for, for solid organs. But actually donating tissue, you can be older than that. There is no limit to the upper age range. So if, if it is your decision that you want to be an organ donor or a tissue donor, it's very likely you will be able to donate something. Um, there is a really careful process of assessing the donor because, of course, we need to be sure that we are um, going to have organs that are going to work and that they are at minimal risk of causing the recipient any harm. So there are some conditions that would uh, limit the likelihood of us being able to safely transplant organs. And one example of that is if someone has uh, current cancer, so they actually have cancer at the time of the donation, it's unlikely they'll be able to donate their organs or their tissue because the there is a chance that, that those cancer cells could be transmitted with the organ. So the process of assessing the donors includes things like assessing their history and making sure that they don't have any health conditions like that that might affect them. Having said that, if you've had cancer in the past that's been treated, that's absolutely fine. That's not a, not a problem at all. Uh, you can certainly donate organs after that. And most other health conditions as well, you know, if you're diabetic, for example, you can still donate. If you've got high blood pressure, you can still donate. If you're a drinker, you can still donate. If you're a smoker, you can still donate. So most things, there's very few absolute contraindications to deceased organ donation, actually. Um, and I, I think one of the key messages for tonight is to bear that in mind and don't think that you won't be suitable to be an organ donor. It, there's a good chance that you will be able to. Fantastic, thanks. Before we go over to Nelson and Kat, I know we've got quite a few questions to get through that people have sent in um, already and, and, you know, audience members, please feel free to type into the, um, into the, 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 the box that if, if there's any questions you'd like to pose to Mike as well. Um, the last sort of big question I want to pose to you, Mike, is um, what is life like after transplantation? What, what is it like? For, and I, I appreciate that's a huge question and it's dependent on multiple factors. But can you give us a bit of an you know, idea of what life is like after a transplant for somebody, please? Yeah, um, so trans, the, the recovery from a transplant or life after a transplant, the, the way to think about it is, is really divided into two parts. The first part is recovering from the surgery itself. Now, having a transplant's a big, a big thing, and particularly for some organs, so you know, hearts and 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 lungs and livers, you know, huge operation to go through for the recipient. They'll be on the intensive care unit while they're recovering. They usually 
um, people who are unwell to begin with, very unwell quite often, particularly when it's things like heart and, and liver transplants. So you're trying to do massive surgery on someone who's already really unwell. So recovering from the actual operation itself is, is tough going and it will it require a, a fairly lengthy stay in hospital and then quite a, a long rehabilitation period afterwards. Once the person is through that, they then have um, uh, a life of taking anti-rejection medications, so immunosuppressants, we call them. So uh, because it, it doesn't it doesn't matter how closely the donor will match the recipient, it will um, you still need to take some drugs that dampen down your immune system um, to allow you to kind of tolerate this thing this organ that's inside you that otherwise your body would see as as uh, in the same way it will see an infection and will try and fight it so it's not a simple life being a transplant recipient uh, they do have to take these medications you have to recover from the surgery but the alternative for the, for um for these people it is far worse and actually for most people once they've recovered from a transplant their quality of life goes back to close to what it was before they had their organ failure and um, so you can do most things there's no restrictions on where you can go in the world there's no restrictions on uh, on activities that you can do within reason uh, you can get back to to work you uh, one of the key things that we see in, in kidney disease is that you, you give people their lives back. You give them uh, the ability to work easily. You give them the ability to travel easily. Their fertility improves so they can have a family if they weren't able to have one before. Um, and it really does transform people's lives. It's not a cure for the underlying condition, which, you know, we have to bear that in mind. But it's as good as we can get. Uh, in the current climate. Fantastic. Thanks so much for that, Mike. Um, I know Nelson's got some questions for you. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, I have a question. Um, basically, this comes from a member of staff from School of Medicine, actually. Uh, I think it is very, very pertinent to the current pandemic. So basically, the question, question was, how can we recover from the negative impact of COVID-19 uh, had on availability of organs for donation? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. We, well, it, it's an interesting one, actually. The, the organ, organ donation continued throughout the pandemic, you know, amazingly. There was a, a huge drop off at the end of March 2020 and April 2020. Uh, but we never stopped. Um, so we carried on uh, retrieving organs. Uh, all the live donor programs temporarily stopped and, and many transplant programs also paused whilst we had to figure out various things in particular, you know, going back to going back to early April uh, 2020, we didn't we weren't we didn't even have any testing at that point. It seems bizarre to think about that now but we couldn't test donors to know whether or not they had COVID we couldn't test recipients to know that they didn't have COVID when they're coming for their transplant so we were really restricted in in what we could do but transplant organ donation continued for life um urgent life-saving purposes so someone who needs a heart transplant someone who's going to 
we, we have what we call a super urgent list um, in the UK for livers and for hearts. And basically that means that without a transplant, that person's expected to die in the next 72 hours. Um, so in that setting, the balance of risk and benefits are very different, of course. And, um, and the, for those recipients, we continued um, organ donation and transplant uh, in the early stages of the pandemic. Then by the summer of 2020, the organ donor numbers actually bounced back to what they were pre-pandemic. We then had a fall off again with the second wave at the, at the end of that year. Um, but we've then managed to maintain the numbers again. Um, so we're back pretty much deceased donor wise to the numbers that we were pre-pandemic. But we lost about 25% of organ donor numbers throughout 2020 and 21 overall. So we, we lost a significant number of, of, of organs. Um, and, and of course, those recipients are, are, are well, I'm still waiting, or unfortunately, their health is deteriorated and they're no longer eligible to get to get a transplant or have died. Um, so it has had a profound effect, uh, but the deceased donor numbers are back to where, where they were. I think one of the biggest challenges we've got at the moment is, is the general fatigue of of everything in in life and you know you've probably all all seen it just day to day um fed up of, of an, another major story another major thing just desperately wanting some quiet time for a bit and this is affecting healthcare workers more than anybody um and of course most of the most organ donors come from from critical care from intensive care units and, and these are the these are the teams who've been you know, hit hardest throughout this pandemic, who've, who've experienced some, some of the uh, most terrible things during managing some really sick patients, losing lots of people. So it's, it's, trying, to, it's trying to get our, ourselves some headspace again so that we can get the focus back to, to doing what we used to be doing so well. And it, it is a credit to everybody who works in intensive care and all the specialist nurses that they've managed really to keep the numbers numbers going but we were on a kind of upward trajectory every year where our donor numbers were were increasing and we're now sort of desperately treading water we talk um we've talked about what we should be doing about publicizing organ donation again one of my roles is is advising the the welsh government and nhs wales on on organ donation and transplant and we're talking about whether whether we should be doing more publicity campaigns at the moment and the feeling is that there's just fatigue about all of this stuff right now and that it will be lost if we try and push things too hard at the moment um so i think i think probably the right thing to do is what we're doing now and just just treading water for a few more months, get ourselves back on an even keel, and then we can go again with the with the profile raising with the publicity again. Live donor numbers have pretty much got back to where where they were where they were before, uh, and the transplant list fell very sharply during COVID. A lot of people were taken off because of the risk benefit ratio had changed due to infections and things. Um, and it's pretty much back to where it was now. A very slight fall in the in the in the transplant list, which probably reflects people who are who are still um, those ones who 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 are maybe on the edge of being suitable for transplants. The 
extra risk of, of COVID has just tipped them over, over that risk balance equation into, into waiting. And we hope that that will, will come back to uh, how things were uh, as we get better at managing this. Mike, thank you so much. That's amazing. Uh, I think I've got some questions. Hi, Mike. I've written my yeah. questions. Well, they're not my questions. I take personal responsibility for questions I haven't written. Um, but first question comes from Anna, and it's what will be you, what do you think will be the the new innovations in in transplantation in the sort of near future, and why? I guess that comes from my very historic remembrance that there are time frames, and you have to have Mm. very specific time frames to um to retrieve organs and get them to their new person so well i i, I would say probably um, short to medium term advances are going to be in the organ donation side and it's probably going to be around the way that we store organs or the way we assess them before we transplant so the the very basic way that we've done it for since organ donation has been a thing is that we carefully remove the organs um, we flush the the the, um, the blood out of the organs and replace it with some special fluid that's designed to sort of preserve the organs but not damage them and then we cool them down and we try and cool them down to four degrees because that's the point where metabolism in the cells slows right down but it doesn't actually damage the organ so this buys us time basically and and that's what we've done since organ retrieval has been a thing and it's pretty much what we do now for most occasions the problem with that is that 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 all you're doing is slowing down the damage to the organs you're not stopping it um, and you do have a, a tight time frame to get those organs transplanted so some of the newer innovations that we've got now in organ retrieval techniques and preservation techniques mean that we can do it in a slightly different way. So we can do the retrieval in a different way where instead of um, instead of preparing the organs and then and then sort of covering them in ice and, and packing them in ice, we can actually um, perfuse them with with blood actually use a, a bit like a heart bypass machine really to sort of pump the uh, blood oxygenated blood through these organs and keep them keep them healthy um and we know and the, the uk is leading the world on this is it's what we call normothermic regional perfusion and it's an actual technique during the retrieval process um and what we've what we're learning is fairly new. It's been around for you know over a decade, but these things take a, a while to get embedded, and they're progressing all the time. And this has got a great potential to in increase the number of organs that we've we can use. As one of the problems we have at the moment is the process of of dying and the process of retrieving organs, and then the process of taking those organs to the transplant center. We will lose some in the process. And what we're thinking about now is ways that we can increase that yield so that we don't lose many organs, that we get the maximize the, the, uh, the gift that that person is given, that that family's given. Um, and this, the, these types of techniques are probably the way that we can do that. And there, there, are, other, there are other things as well. You, you, can, you can put the you can use machines to to pump blood through the through the organ while they're transporting it to to the hospital to be transplanted. Um, 
in the pipeline, although it's a few more years away yet, are what we call ARCs, so uh, assessment and recovery centres. And this is kind of an exciting uh, way that that we I hope will go, um, which is instead of instead of taking the organs and sending them quickly off to the recipient centre to be transplanted, we could send them somewhere else where they are assessed, properly assessed and recovered. So we improve them. If you like, we make sure they're gonna work and then we, then we send them to the place to be transplanted. Um, and that's, got, that's a got exciting potential, but again, it's a little, a little way off yet. Um, so I, th I think that the innovations will be in, in donation. We may see some advances in, in the drugs that we give after transplants. So the anti-rejection medications, they, we, they're constantly being tweaked. I suspect we'll see some further advances. You probably read about the, the, the pig heart transplant. Um, it's an exciting innovation, but I think we're, we are many years away from that being standard practice yet. Something along those lines will probably be the future but I'm, we're talking about long distant future way after I've retired, unfortunately, uh, for those kind of things to be to be reality. Might it be that treatments mean that people don't get to the stage of needing transplants quite as as much? I, I that's we've seen that already, um, and uh, and some of the innovations in in um managing cystic fibrosis for example have totally transformed the number of people who need need organ transplants and, and likewise you can see you can see it happening with with things like advances in diabetes care for example um where you know we will get better at managing diabetes in the long term no doubt um and and absolutely the right way for us to go as a as a as a population is to try and try and stop these diseases from happening rather than trying to pick up the pieces after they've actually happened. So we definitely need to be investing in those sorts of areas. The, the sad reality is that, that people have already been, organs have already been damaged. You know, that's not going to reverse the, the, the situation. So we will always have a tail, however good we get at managing diabetes, we're going to have a legacy of, of people who, who didn't have good control their diabetes for the last 20 or 30 years who, who need organ transplants. Lovely, thank you. I think Nelson's got a, his next question. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Um, I have a question, Mike, here. Um, this is about the waiting list actually uh, so basically the question is how do you get on to the waiting list do we have any specific um policies or government protocols and guidelines how it is generally governed actually at the moment yeah so so the transplant list um is it works slightly differently for each of the different organs but uh, all of them will have a criteria that will involve um <clears throat> well i suppose it's assessing two things to begin with first off it's assessing does this person actually need this organ transplant and do they need them now so a good example of that is someone who we know has got advanced kidney disease or advanced liver disease but they're not at the point where um they are so bad that they need an organ right now 
So we need to know that this person is going to actually gain a benefit from the transplant. And then the second thing is you've got, you need to assess their fitness to be able to come through the procedure. And again, that's very different depending on, on the organ, um, but will require a variety of different tests of your sort of uh, heart fitness, your general fitness, your ability to come through a, a major operation. Many people who have the advanced conditions that cause organ failures, by their definition, they've got lots of other health problems that are going on as well. So if you think about, for example, someone who's got advanced kidney disease, the average person who, who's, who reaches the need to start dialysis is, is in their late 60s. So you're already at the end, at the sort of in that range where you, the benefits of transplants are getting less obvious, although you certainly can benefit from transplants well, well over that. And, and actually our oldest recipient in, in Cardiff was 81 when, when she was transplanted and she did very well afterwards. So um, the age per se is not a, a restriction to, to having a transplant, but it's those health conditions that come with age that can sometimes stop that from happening there is another important point to bear in mind and that's that this is an important um, uh, national resource so if i use a kidney for one of my patients someone somewhere else isn't getting a kidney transplant so i can't just go out on a whim and say, well, it probably isn't going to work, but it's a, it, let's give it a go just in case. We can't do that. We have to be mindful of the fact that this is, um, that if, if I'm transplanting someone, someone else isn't getting a transplant. Um, so there are, it's complicated, but, but the, the process is assessed. They're suitable um, by making sure they'll benefit, making sure they're fit enough and making sure that we're not going to, um, we're going to transplant an organ that is likely to work. Hopefully that makes sense. Thanks, Mike. It's really, really useful. Over to Kev. To me, here we are, here I am again. Um, so, right, I'm going to read this one, Mike, because it's it's a long question. Ooh, uh, and there's some come up in the in the message box as well, so that's good news. So, Mike, are there any groups of people, as in groups could be for cultural, religious, any particular groups, um, who are excluded from donating blood, tissue, or organs? Because I think historically there's sort of been urban myths, haven't there? And certainly we've all heard of urban myths for various reasons, but can you? categorically clarify if anybody's excluded no, not, not on an individual basis obviously yeah there's there's no groups who are excluded basically is the simple answer to that and certainly um there's no major um world religion who oppose organ donation every one of the major religions um permits organ donation both in life and after dying um so there isn't any restrictions from that perspective there are some um, cultural um, challenges that go with um, people's not necessarily considering organ donation as easily in certain cultures as others, but there isn't anything that actually is excludes organ donation as a as a as an entity. Um, we we have we have some challenges with um, 
engaging the, the BAME population when it comes to organ donation, um, particularly deceased organ donation. And I, I, again, this is not for any uh, religious reasons because all the religions will permit this to happen. It's because of um, a variety of different things that are complicated to unpick, but we're sort of working our way through them slowly, but they, they go along the lines of, of lots of other issues that people from BAME backgrounds have had to deal with um, throughout their lives. There is a tendency for uh, mistrust in, in healthcare professionals and in authority in general, which is entirely understandable given what BAME populations have had to deal with over the years. It's not surprising at all that they're a bit suspicious about um, the white man saying, can, can we use your organs? Um, so we've got more to do when it comes to engaging in the, the um, BAME populations. We've got plans to do it. One of the things that's worth mentioning is that um, we are a diverse medical population when it comes to uh, our healthcare team. So uh, the I am the only British surgeon in my team of eight surgeons. Uh, we have um, surgeons from all around the world, all, all different religions. Um, and no religions at all um, and um, so we we are a diverse um, pop, um, healthcare team if you like and we're trying to utilize that a little bit more to try and get the messages right the, the sad thing is that um, there are there are many health conditions that that are genetically linked that are more likely to occur in certain eth ethnic groups and high blood pressure and diabetes is two very good examples of that. So what that means is that, that um, people from of BAME backgrounds are more likely to experience health problems that lead to them needing a transplant. Um, but they're also less likely to donate organs. Now, the reason that this is a, an issue is that there is a matching process that happens between donors and recipients. Now, ethnicity has nothing to do with that but tissue type and blood type are, and both of those things are genetically linked. So um, blood type, for example, um, there is the, the least common blood type in the UK is blood type B, and blood type B is much more common in, in uh, Asian populations. So there are fewer um, people who are blood group B donating organs. So if you're on the list and you're blood group B, there's fewer people who you can receive organs from. And the same applies to the tissue type. So that goes down beyond your blood type. And this is this tells us who, who matches you, who, who can, can donate an organ to you. And again, that's um, genetically linked. So what we see is a higher proportion of, of BAME populations on transplant lists, and it's roughly 20% of our transplant lists are um, made up of BAME um, population. But and I, that's in comparison can I, to can I, can I just clarify? So yeah. when we when we when we categorise people as being, mm. um, that's people from Black, Asian, um, any anyone who's not white, Caucasian, really, isn't it? Yeah, basically. In yeah. Terms of, in terms of black, Asian, minority, ethnic is it's yeah. is the term, and it's it's essentially anybody who who isn't Caucasian, pretty much. Um, and it, there's no registration of 
you know, when, when we're matching, it doesn't go according to, well, this is a donor from an Asian donor, so it's got to go into an Asian recipient. It doesn't work like that. But the, the, the blood types will influence it and the tissue types certainly will influence it. And it's well known that, that, um, that BAME patients will wait longer for organs than Caucasians. And that's because there aren't as many BAME donors. So 20% of waiting list of BAME, about 10 to 12% of the UK population are BAME, but only 1% of deceased donors are BAME. So we've got to get that number up so that we can reduce the wait in time. And the vast majority, obviously what that means is the majority of, of people from BAME backgrounds will receive an organ from a, from a Caucasian. That's, that is what will happen. Uh, Which because is not, not as ideal as you'd want it to be, is it? So well, it's not just about the waiting time, is it? It's about getting the closest match. Both the match and the time. Yeah. Both yeah. the match and the time will be, so they'll tend to wait longer and the match will tend to be not quite as good. Yeah, yeah, which is not not what any nobody everyone wants the best match they can get. Although, admittedly, if you're in that in that super urgent list, pretty much you'll you'll have if anything comes up, you you'll. It's it's a really it's a really difficult balance when it comes to the organ allocation list between the person who's most at need versus the person who will be able to get the most use yeah, out of that organ. Out, right? So if you simply put you know, just think about it like this. You've got one kidney and you've got two recipients. You've got one person who um, is going to die in the next 24 hours if they don't get their transplants, but it will only last a year. Or you've got another person who's not going to die in the next 24 hours, but if you give them that transplant, they'll last for 10 years. Yeah. So which one do you give that organ to? And potentially and the one who's healthier at the moment might deteriorate and not get another offer either because you don't have a crystal ball do you that is entirely it so all of the organ allocation systems try and find this balance between the two so for organs that are you know where unfortunately when it comes to kidneys there isn't a super we don't need a super urgent list because we have an effective alternative treatment in the form of dialysis that doesn't mean that it's perfect and it will mean that people's health will deteriorate over time but for some of the organs like livers and hearts and lungs, they, you know, you, there are the situation where literally the person is going to die if they don't get a transplant and it's going to happen soon. So in that scenario, those people need to be prioritized and they need to get the next organ that's available. Um, so what, what we would really like is, is, is more organs so that we can just take the whole process back a few steps so that we have enough that we've not got people reaching that point um, where they've actually progressed, their health has deteriorated so much that they've, they're have they in that scenario. You'll still have the very occasional occasions where um, uh, something comes about, some health condition hits very hard and very quickly and it means that someone needs a transplant and you know, two weeks ago they, they knew nothing about any of this. The, but they are the minority. Most of these conditions are things that we've known about for a long time. We've been trying to manage with other means and we've reached a point where this is the only thing that we've got left. Yeah. But it is a complicated balance. The person who really needs it. And, it, you know, it's less of an, I maybe give you the, a, a poor example there because someone who needs a, an organ is going to die in the next 24 hours clearly you're going to prioritize them but it's it's maybe someone who's who's 
not going to imminently die, but their health is going to deteriorate versus someone, you know, do you give it the best match? Do you give it to somebody who um, is uh, guaranteeing you they're going to give, they're going to live for another 20, 30 years to maximize the length of that transplant? Um, or do you try and share the organs around, which is the right thing? Do you prioritize young people over older people? What's the, what's the right thing to do? It's interesting if you talk to people on the waiting list, the older people will usually say you should be prioritizing the young people. Um, there's, and it, there's quite a sense of guilt sometimes when yeah. people uh, uh, receive an organ, knowing that yeah. other people are still waiting, isn't it? There is, and, and um, we shouldn't underestimate that. It's quite a difficult thing to sort of psychologically understand and accept, particularly if you've, if you've received an organ from someone after they've died, that, that um, actually that this is, a, um, one, somebody's died and, you, and your organ is now, um, their organ is now your organ. Um, but also, as you say, that point of, you know, what about somebody else? Why, did, why do I deserve this rather than someone else? Um, the complex is complex psychology that goes in, in into all of these things and the, the live donation issue adds an extra element to it so when you've got people who've donated well, funny you should say that there's a question in the chat that says does being a live kidney donor have an impact on your own life expectancy if you donate a kidney that was a bit of a segue wasn't it well, this is an interesting one because what we know is people who donate kidneys live on average longer than than age matched uh, population. Uh, so, the the truth is that that isn't that of course isn't because we've taken your kidney out. It's because we've, we've selected we've selected people who are who are very Rich healthy. People give their kidneys. Yeah. yeah. So the, the process of don donating a kidney in life we don't take risks when it comes to that. So, you know, when it comes to receiving a transplant, there's a degree of risks that's, that's acceptable because, you know, you're going to get benefits. When it comes to donating in life, that, that risk benefit is the, bar the, 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 the level is much, much lower. So we won't accept high risks when it comes to donating. So if you donate a kidney, your life expectancy is longer than the average population your lifetime risk of developing kidney failure yourself is one in a thousand, which is the same as the general population. So again, unlikely it's going to affect you. And having donated a kidney in life, it's the only condition that prioritizes you on the transplant list. So should you in the unlikely occasion, so one in a thousand occasion where you progress to developing kidney failure yourself, you are prioritized on the transplant list. And that's the only group of people that we actually prioritize on the as a as an entire group on the on the kidney transplant list. I believe Nelson has a question. Yeah. And then I've got two, I think, after that. Mike, uh, you already touched actually uh, on the, the psychological impact, you know, that the recipient sometimes they may have, uh, you know, sort of like guilt feeling and stuff like that. Do they get any sort of a preparation psychologically before they receive the organs actually as part of the whole procedure? Uh, well, uh, so we, we do have um, specialist clinical psychologists who work purely with our transplant team. So yes, is it, it, that there is access to that. It's not routine that everybody gets psychology assessment before they go for a transplant. Um, there are certain groups of people who clearly 
need it and benefit from it and we will we will make sure that they're seen before and afterwards it's more of a firefighting if i'm totally honest we we i you know we will we have the ability to refer people but we don't have enough psychologists around and available uh, it's not resourced as well as it should be and this is one of the priority areas for us in wales for the future now is to is to improve the psychological support that we offer for um organ donors and transplant recipients um so i i'm hoping we will get better at it but there is something available it's just not quite as good as it could be thanks mike i have a question from one of our participants here uh, the question from katie uh how long roughly after the transplant can we recognize rejections or acceptance um so the the early stages after a transplant are the one are the time that it's most likely to have rejection now the one thing that people don't always realize is that the majority of cases of rejection we can treat so we we can you know it's not the case of end of transplant if you get rejection and about one in five kidney transplant recipients get rejection at some point so it's very common you know 20 percent it's not uncommon at all usually we can treat it and usually we can effectively treat it we increase the amount of anti-rejection drugs we give basically we maybe have you in hospital for a bit with some high dose um drugs for a few days and then increase the amount that you're on by tablet after that um we don't see um what we call hyperacute rejection which is that the organ just won't be accepted at the start because we've got processes that assess that and make sure that this that when we transplant an organ we know it is suitable for that recipient but occasionally we see early rejection in the first uh, couple of weeks and then it's probably the first six months that it's most likely to happen it can happen at any point further down the line as well but those first few months are the, are the critical time really mike that's really good that's really interesting actually i think you know in relation to the same question mike um Something else. For example, let's say the rejection occurs quite soon after the transplantation. Can the organ be reused again? So we'll usually we'll usually salvage the organ if if as long as we pick it up early. If you've if you've if if the question is if you've got a transplant that actually gets to the point of not being uh, fails completely, then no, we can't do anything with that then. Most of the time, actually, we don't need to remove it. Usually it just kind of it stays there when it comes to kidneys. Obviously, if it's, if it's your only remaining organ, it's your liver or it's your heart, then then it's re-transplant is the, is the only way you're gonna, that you've got to go. Um, if it's kidneys, we can transplant again and you go on to dialysis for a period of time while we wait for another organ. Okay, thanks, Mike. Um, I think Kat has got some questions. I've got, I've got a question from Connor, who was asked um, if if you've uh, if you've donated a kidney uh, in a, a live kidney donation, um, what what would be the experience that you would have as the donor of the kidney, um, and would it require changes to your lifestyle, diet, habits, etc.? Well, most. So I would expect by. Um, so three months after the donation, I'd expect you to be completely back to, to how you were before. And for most people, it's quicker than that. Uh, so I, I, 
I see my donors two weeks after they've donated. So usually they're in hospital for two or three days afterwards and then they're home. Um, and I'll see them in the outpatient clinic two weeks later. And the vast majority of them by two weeks are, are great. You know, they're, you know, they walk in and you wouldn't know there was anything wrong with them. By certainly by six weeks, you know, there's rarely any anything left behind in terms of their um, fitness and things. They're usually back up to up to normal. And certainly three months, I, I would fully expect everybody to be um, completely recovered. I um, I removed a kidney from a, a young lady last year um, who uh, ran an ultra marathon less than six months later. So she ran a hundred kilometer race I, I run the same race actually but um obviously i hadn't donated a kidney so i can't really claim that i was uh, anything special for doing that but she she so donated a kidney and within six months ran an ultra marathon so that gives you an idea that you know there's no restrictions long term um it's a lot of it is mindset lifestyle wise we just ask that you are sensible because you don't want to acquire health conditions that might put strain on, on your kidney, you know, suggest that you keep your, your, your weight um, healthy. We'll see you at least once a year for an MOT. So you'll see one of our team uh, once a year for the rest of your life, um, where we'll hassle you about your weight and uh, check your kidney function um make sure your blood pressure is okay so hopefully if you do develop any problems we'll pick it up early and be able to treat it if that happens um so the short answer is i wouldn't expect any long-term consequences of donating apart from um knowing that you've saved somebody's uh life in the long term so and that that shouldn't be underestimated the positive effect that that has knowing that you've done something like that and i think this, this is the, one of the points about organ donation and transplant that, that um, it sounds obvious, but it can be, get missed that every day in the UK, somebody's donating organs, several people donating organs. People are, are doing this for no benefit to themselves, purely and simply because they're good and because they want to help somebody else, whether that's helping somebody after your loved ones died or after you've died in the most traumatic and horrendous situation to actually be thinking about somebody else at that point in time that's what people are like that's what our population is actually like it's not um donald trump and boris johnson that's not what our population is what our population is people every single day donating organs people donating uh, kidneys in life to strangers who they'll never meet because they want to know that they've done everything that they can to help somebody else. That happens all the time, you know, so that's real. That should be the headlines every single day in the newspapers. But of course, um, the bad stories make more waves. So that's the reason why we have disproportionate number of negative news stories, unfortunately. Thank you very much. I think, I think we've covered all the questions. Ricky, do you want to take control again? Thank you very much. Mike, that, that's been absolutely superb. And, and we've come to our time now. And um, I just want to say thank you and how much we appreciate that. And I'm sure all the audience listening have, have really appreciated have learned so much. Um, it's incredible, Mike. And I wish we could do a round of applause on Zoom, but it goes all funny. But yeah, for those listening, there's a, a sort of virtual round of applause. 
Um, so I just want to say thank you to you, Mike. I want to say thank you to the audience for coming. I want to say thank you for people um, writing in questions tonight. I want to say, you know, it's been lovely to be part of such a, uh, you know, an interesting collaboration between Cardiff University's Healthcare Sciences and Believe Organ Donation Support. And um, just to finish off, Mike, I'd just like to give you the last word. Is there anything that you'd just like to say or a piece of advice or words of wisdom for everyone before we go? Well, what, what I'd say is that um, just have a think about organ donation and make a decision on it and talk to your relatives about what that decision is. If you think that you would like to be an organ donor in life, talk to your local transplant centre and we'll see whether you are suitable to donate to a stranger or to somebody that you know. If you think that you would want to be an organ donor after your death, make that positive decision tell your relatives about it and that smooths the whole process then um, because your relatives will be it will be discussed with them and if they know what your decision is then they will be carrying through your decision after you've died and it will make the process easier for them to deal with so that's the only thing that I would ask of everybody please have a think about it I'm not going to push anybody into any of this but think what do you want to do make your decision uh, and tell your relatives and your loved ones what that decision is. That's great. Thanks very much, Mike. And thanks to everyone uh, for sort of listening in on the podcast and listening out for some more episodes, okay? Thanks very much. Good night. So thank you for listening and a huge thank you to the audience for coming on the night and for people who sent in questions. Also, we're really grateful to Mike for spending time with us and answering all our questions. Um, I'd also like to say if you'd like more information on organ donation and transplant, please look at the NHSBT website and also look at Believe Organ Donation Support's website um, for information on how families, uh, both transplant recipients and organ donors can be supported. Thanks ever so much for listening. Bye now.